Hang on. I'm, I, get, I need to check. I, I got a blood test and uh, I need to see whether or not I'm in an anarchist jurisdiction. <laughs> Just put your blood in a centrifuge and it tells you. Oh, is that how it works? Okay. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, 15 I, minutes, you know. I think it's like high time that the death panel came out in support of property. We've, yeah. been, um, we've been remiss in not supporting property uh, mm-hmm. as much as we should have been for the past couple months and yeah uh, apparently that's just what the left is doing right now is just saying like actually you know small business owners business owners as they are are still good as a uh, as a vertical of vox media we are proud <laughs> to come out in favor of property i wish it was just vox media which, i know uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, i no, thought that was, as i said it, it was like if it was vox media it wouldn't even be uh private property it would be you know uh like rental property basically <laughs> fee for service property yeah people are looting in the verticals yeah <laughs> <laughs> panel we're back with a, another main feed episode um if you'd like to support the show become a patron and get access to the premium episode that comes out earlier in the week which was the first one where phil was back after a while yay you get to, you get to hear me raw here's <laughs> live unplug uncut so we're uh yeah we're reunited this week uh phil we're glad you're home and um I'm sure it must have been kind of weird to be in the hospital during Kenosha, um, but just the past couple of weeks have been just a very interesting re-exploration of the sort of violent protester versus peaceful protester discourse in a way that has gotten like truly disgusting. Yeah, I thought we were done with. I thought we were done with this. Oh, we're we never need done. To have this. Yeah, we're never done with this. Yeah. So I mean, um, the protests going on with the fact that I don't know, like. We were listening to NPR earlier this week before one of my infusions, and there was an obituary for the uh, Patriot Prayer person who was killed in Portland. And, you know, the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign signaling now that they're going to continue to reinforce these divisions that are, as we've talked about a million times, incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And I think it's I think the, the, the sort of thing that's fascinating to me is you would imagine that at some point there'd be some at the very least intervention or uh, like modification from just the sort of, you know, historical 1968 kind of uh, framing of this. But it is really as if they just pulled the uh, just pulled the scripts from the like 68 DNC and RNC and are just like going with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's become now a what it's like law and order versus law and order race yeah. basically over the last week, which is pretty funny. I mean, I think it's, it's just like, which brand do you want special well, victims unit or crime and punishment? <laughs> well, I think it's worth being like really explicit though, because I mean, if you think about it, so not this past Sunday, but the last Sunday, the like the 23rd mm-hmm. so kenosha happened mm-hmm. um the following week the entire following week was the rnc <laughs> and then quickly after that um you know trump continued to give a bunch of um press conferences and stuff one of which i think is really worth examining in close detail mm-hmm. because um i think it really laid out sort of the um 
the specifics of the line of attack, which I think uh, at this that sort of I mean, so so much of it, it's the same shit, right? Like he's been the right. law, he's been like running on Law and Order since like 2015 or something, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, he's been saying that cities are in flame since 2016. Like he's been since uh, 1985. Yeah, I mean, like, like the, <laughs> so this true. is it doesn't really matter what happens. His the the rhetorical imaginary he's constructed from the beginning is the same thing. There's in a narrative sort of structure. There's zero change. Well, it's a actually, well, but I think it, uh, in terms of like the overall structure, yeah, it's like a constant. But I think that it has con- it is like crystallized and crystallized mm-hmm. around this moment, and in particular the way that like the Biden campaign has tried and sort of failed to respond to it has like I think enabled this moment to kind of like reach a fever pitch. Yeah. of like mass concern hysteria over riot rioting basically it, yeah. which is the well but the like the i mean the specifics of it are as such right and it's it's interesting because it's not just in the i think it's in the remarks that he made um in this press conference and um like last weekend basically um but it's also like i it's the line that you see consistently from white house aides and from just people who are like working on the campaign whenever they're asked about this it's like it follows the following points basically um there is explicitly left-wing political violence in the streets mm-hmm. um this is happening in cities with democratic party mayors and leadership explicitly um Further, they're, they're aiding and abetting it. The leadership right. is that's the, the phrase anarchist jurisdiction, which has got to be the best oxymoron of all time. Right. Anarchist well, <laughs> jurisdiction. But it's like, no, they're not just like uh, it's, it's not just like happenstance like that. They're aiding and abetting it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and that's I mean, that's all. Roles. And that's like a, a separate thing. I mean, do you want to explain that even? Yeah. I mean, so like this is the thing that came out yesterday that leaked and now is a published executive order that directs. The Office of Management and Budget to uh, eliminate <laughs> all federal funds from cities that uh, it determines that the OMB determines are anarchist jurisdictions, according to a set of <laughs> criteria that are laid out in the order. And it already sort of mentions Portland, yeah, uh, New, York. New York, Seattle, uh, Washington, uh, D.C. Yeah, Bill um, de Blasio is such a fucking anarchist. <laughs> I know. Boy, <laughs> well, only. Well, but here's well, but, and I mean the other yeah the other thing I guess is that it it uh, like regardless there's like this whole thing like well this is not legal well, obviously it isn't but you know one of the things that he gets to do is something that like they've already done in a number of instances which is like produce these lists and these facts and figures like here's how much money is going into these anarchist jurisdictions so it is just sort of part of the. Um, a very powerful piece of like austerity legislation, uh, meaningful political theater. Well, I mean, me- meaningful political theater beyond that, it, it gives him cover for like not signing anything regarding like state and local aid. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, but it is it does sort of reinforce this this idea that it's uh, it's not just like radicals in the streets or a left wing plot in the streets, but it's connected to uh, actual like governing right. institutions, exactly. which is really, a, I, I think if there's any innovation in Trump's rhetoric, like from, you know, the sixties sort of law and order rhetoric, it's that, uh, in the sixties, Nixon was like, yeah, these people are disobeying their good mayors and governors. Whereas right. now it's like, uh, yeah, their mayors and governors are like 
they're you know, oh, like Antifa. in cahoots twiddling mm-hmm. their yeah yeah like Bill de Blasio's Antifa yeah right right no exactly <laughs> but that and that's the and but that's kind of that's what I mean in terms of how it's like sort of like crystallized in this moment mm-hmm. because I, you know I was that that what I said before was like the the beginning of the layout of that argument but then it goes on now and right. it is consistently like you see in um, the statements of White House officials like they will just jump to the part that I'm about to say which is further the quote violent rioters. Uh, mm-hmm have the same agenda as Joe Biden. Right. Which is mm-hmm. funny. That Joe Biden is imagine. even like but, acting as their um, puppet. Right. Well, that uh, that Biden's uh, that uh, Biden will not call them out on it because he is like a part of it and because they support, uh, you know, his agenda, which is, again, laughable. Um, and that Biden's refusal to use the term, the term Antifa, like, yeah, um, is proof of this. Um, and that further the use of the term peaceful protest and peaceful protester is a convenient term and some sort of like open lie, basically, um, <laughs> yeah. when really but there is no such thing as yeah. right, which, which sets up actually a, <laughs> you know, it, it's obviously not, uh, not like none of this is, uh, true in terms of like the (laughs) the Biden coordination, but it actually sets up like a perfect fucking vice trap for them Mm -hmm. because like, what are they going to do? Right. I mean, Biden's response so far has kind of just been like, come on, man. But like (laughs) the, but they kind of have like three options, right? They can either like ignore it. Right. And then face like thousands of elderly voters asking like, but Biden, why won't you you know, why won't you denounce Antifa? Which like, as though Antifa is like a organization, like they treat, they, they're calling it an organization or whatever, when it's like not even a, it's like not even an ideology. It's like one principle, like anti-fascist, right? Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Um, so they can like it's ignore an abbreviation. it. It's literally an abbreviation. They can be reform. They it. can be forced to respond. Like the Biden campaign can be forced to respond specifically to the Antifa thing and to like explain <laughs> That it's not an organization which will sound to people like covering for the organization. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or three, they can do what I think is probably going to happen, which is they denounce Antifa and in the minds of a bunch of liberals and everyone who's already primed to believe it on the right, suddenly Antifa is like the American ISIS and it's like a real thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it, I think it's like it's not um, it's not a coincidence that this is exactly like the, um, you know, they won't use the word radical Muslim terrorist. Yeah, uh, I was critique. just going to say this is our the line that the Trump administration yeah, did. The, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Like, here's here's a question, which is that, like, what is the net effect of having the Antifa thing to point to? Because, you know, I, I think it's interesting that, like, again, it, it's not as if there hasn't always been a, a retor- an attempt to rhetorically connect uh really what are spontaneous actions Mm -hmm. to the plot of whatever is deemed to be the anti-American, you know, whether or not it's like the communist party or the black Panthers, like whatever, whatever you deem to be like anti-American, there's always an attempt to like take these things, which are in fact organic events Mm -hmm. and connect them to this like broader strategy. That's that itself is not new, but I think what's, I mean, maybe what's interesting to me is how necessary that continues to be uh because if you 
if you didn't have that, or if, if that sort of rhetorical strategy wasn't like mined sufficiently, you would have to say like something more about why these people are writing. Right. And <laughs> yeah. that leads you down a completely different rhetorical uh, path. And that's the thing that I think, you know, when we're thinking about like Biden's options, it, it's when he talks about this, he does make this sort of distinction between uh, peaceful protesters and writers. But which, okay, like that is one of the three things in like the uh, McDonald's value menu um, that he can like choose. But I think the fascinating thing is that there's never a discussion of like why people might be rioting. Right. Mm -hmm. The most that they've got, I think, is there are um, Democratic Party people who are giving quote like you know going around giving pr quotes basically saying like i mean basically openly saying we're still figuring out how to respond to this but uh we're trying to make sure that everyone knows that um that like to the extent that there is uh you know violence on the streets of america that it's happening specifically because trump's in charge right, right yeah <laughs> you know um i mean it's a very lazy framing and and i think this speech that Artie and I were reading this morning. It sounded absolutely wild coming out of Daniel's mouth, but it was the remarks that he made on the 31st, which Trump's were remarks. Trump's remarks that he made on the 31st, which were, um, you know, basically sort of announcing that he was tasking the Department of Justice and Homeland Security to set up um, just, you know, blanket investigations on left wing civil unrest. I mean, I guess one way of thinking about it is that, like, there are a lot of different strands that Trump is re- is sort of tugging on in, in the base. And, you know, I think the, like, there's just not as much momentum for him uh, this time as there was in 2016. The only way of getting that is finding a way to tie those strands together, leaving it actually sort of as vague as possible. So, you know, other sources can like fill in uh, as much of the uh, even crazier sort of conspiracies as you wish. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I think that that's like, if you think about like, what is the kind of thing that gets people motivated enough to do what is actually a fairly costly action of like voting? (laughs) Um, You know that I think that that is, that is part of it, but it's of course not the only part. Um, The other aspect of it is to make uh, a more fully nationalistic uh, fascistic, like politics of, you know, uh, schools are for patriotism, Uh, (laughs) you know, uh, cities, will be like rebuilt in a different image. Like cities are themselves sort of um, anti like calling these things an- anarchist jurisdictions is like the move. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, I do think that there's a kind of an attempt to, to tie these strands together enough to like generate some electoral momentum, but it, it sort of only works if nationalism or like, you know, these, these sort of like, fascist like impulses are at the heart of it Mm -hmm. well i mean but what's um important here though is like the the biden response um Mm -hmm. is like really is the thing because it's not like they yes they've done like ad buys against each other or whatever but this stems from this sort of like conflict that happened at the beginning of the week where essentially like First, um, they sent like Kamala Harris out to say, uh, what, what was it that she said specifically? She, like, she was really hit hammering the peaceful protesters thing yeah. really mm-hmm. hard being like, you know, these are not rioters. These are peaceful protesters mm-hmm. that the president is targeting. Um, like, you know, again, reinforcing that division saying like, no, it's okay. Like they're not like 
trust us. Like These I would, are the I good would protesters. I would, I right? I would prosecute people if they were being violent against even like a totally fascist, like impl- you know, yeah, whatever. You, like you know me, <laughs> I, I'm Mamala, famous for throwing the mothers of disabled children in jail because their kids are in the hospital. Yeah, I, you um, know, trust me. <laughs> But right. then because, you know, Biden gets up and makes the speech, which now has become the subject of an ad, like literally they cut his speech from Monday into an ad where he's basically like um, this was the one in Pittsburgh. He, yeah. Well, he does the like, look, we've got to protect the peaceful protesters. I condemn violence by anyone, uh, which sounds to me a lot like the like, you know, there are many good many people uh, yeah. like what is it many uh, good people on both sides mm-hmm. thing from Trump yeah. after Charlottesville, frankly. And then. <laughs> Like literally in the statement that they released after this, the Biden campaign, you know, they they like condemn quote unquote violence, which again, like looting and riots often are like violence against property. They're just like it's against material goods. But like what is it in the statement? They say like uh, it's not a peaceful protest if you go in spoiling for a fight. <laughs> so it just like reinforces this like outside agitators bullshit, which is like mm-hmm. the longest running. I mean, this is you know, yeah, the, the thing. The thing I guess I find fascinating about all of this is, you know, immediately after Trump was elected, you had all of these, I don't know, middle of the road academics talking about the, you know, fascism, can it happen here? There were so many, it was just a co- complete cottage industry of these books, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the implication of all of that was like, this is precisely the kind, like, Staking out the debate in these ways, drawing uh, Biden into a, into sort of like a trap like this rhetorically is precisely what you would expect somebody with like fascist tendencies to do. And, and precisely like one way in which like basic institutions of democracy are delegitimated. So what I'm saying is that one doesn't even need to have a like a left analysis of any of this. Right. Uh, however, Biden has, I, I guess, you know, as uh you know, perhaps connected to like middle of the road political analysts as he might be, it just like conveniently ignored any of this. There, there's no analysis of the idea that like, yeah, this might be a way of just completely um, like delegitimating all all of the institutions that you claim to like care about at all. Well, um, I, I love it though because it's basically like because the campaign has over the course of this week, you know, uh, like both campaigns have have drummed up into this huge chest beating thing about mm-hmm. who's going to be more law and order of like who's going to have more lawful order in law and order right um it's literally it, it just it's like I a mean, pig and, show at, at, at the county fair and like what is it you know like trump literally going and doing campaign stops at like burned out mm-hmm. buildings or whatever it's funny because it really just it communicates this thing which i feel like i've felt since kind of i mean since the uh, pandemic began and like it, it dropped down to just being like Joe Biden versus Trump, which is just that like it has become this huge spectacle uh, to compete for like who can be king of the ashes at the mm-hmm. end, right. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's very right. Maybe this is a good time to uh, talk about. So Vicki Osterwell, um, her latest book came out and there was an interview that she did about it in uh, on Code Switch on NPR, I think it was. Um, and Vicky's book is called In Defense of Looting, if you if you haven't heard of it. Um, but what has happened as a result of that conversation has been that not only has, like, you know, there been a mainstream pile-on from places like The Atlantic and, you know, generally respectable 
people in general, but also like most of like large, large sections of Rose emoji Twitter have joined in with like vigor to like pile on Vicky in defense of small business owners who are theoretically being completely ruined, um, which is hilarious because if, if anyone who like grew up in Los Angeles will will just remember like the Rodney King riots, like they sound exactly like all of the local reporters did, like trying to literally incite violence by like in the news pitting the Korean American business community who like own convenience stores against the protesters. Like, I think it's been really telling. Like, I've unfollowed a lot of people. I've muted a lot more. (laughs) Um, I feel like a new sense of, like, clarity in my timeline. Like, it's been cleansed, in a sense. Um, I mean, for the most part, I feel like a lot of the responses are quite um, boring, actually. Ironically, Mm -hmm. they mostly redound to, you know, uh, again, like, Rose Emoji and DSA people being, like, actually, small businesses are, are, are good actually mm-hmm. um and doing the doing the sort of classic line of like well like like tell that to the tell that to the the small business owner or whatever who gets their like shop who's looted. crying the, outside of their burned out shop right, crying at the loss of their you know arby's franchise which is like you know among among other things like come on most most you we all know that like first of all like whatever there, there is still a distinction between like property owners or people who are business owners and looting as like a redistributive act within a community right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but like anyway fundamentally too it's like for the most part as we've seen throughout like the entire summer so much of the stuff that gets targeted is like what a like a fucking local branch of a big box store i mean who's cbs yeah this is like, Targets. Have you let's called this the definition of a victimless crime. Right, but then, but then of course you have the framing that's also very popular in the reports of this stuff. Like we saw um, when uh, you know Soho experienced its its uh, let's call it reappropriative event. People were uh, like clamoring on this Rolex store story, which was basically like the only source was an NYPD officer saying, oh, yeah, they made away with like three million dollars in Rolexes. And then the shop owner is like, no, they just broke displays. Everything's in the safe. Nothing was stolen. Right. Well, similarly, I mean, similarly, not that it even literally matters because fuck that Rolex store. But like you know, all of the, all of the sort of like high end, you know, like handbag stores and stuff like that had already been, you know, boarded up and cleared out like because of COVID, like because of fears of looting even prior to, uh, like any kind of unrest in New York city. So like, you know, whatever, there wasn't anything in there to begin with, but that discourse on the left feels exactly the same as, or, or sort of like a microcosm of the, um, conversation around like peaceful versus like peaceful protesters versus looters in like the mainstream discourse well that's why i think it's like so i mean that's why i think it's so funny that it's happening right now because at the very moment when like the big national campaigns are are like swinging at each other over like the difference between violence and uh (laughs) like violent like what is it left-wing radical violence and like peaceful protesters and also how Um, much how much violence is appropriate from the state right yeah well but it's just it's funny then to that's why you know like i I think for the most part actually the 
the criticisms levied at Vicky Osterweil's book uh, are pretty much just like, I don't know, standard pablum. And unfortunately, ironically, I think play into some of the exact sort of bullshit arguments that we're talking about from like the Biden campaign, like oh, the, totally. the stance that they're taking against what, what Trump is saying. But I think maybe we should go through, um, there was a, uh, there was a piece published, I think, what is it, uh, this morning, yesterday morning, um, Yesterday morning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the Atlantic uh, by <laughs> Graham Wood, who, you know, Atlantic staff writer. Hey, when, I'm formerly, looking for, when I'm looking for takes on uh, social unrest, I'm looking for people with names like Graham Wood. <laughs> <laughs> formerly has written uh, stuff for like the National Review mm-hmm. uh, ha- is um, one of the, like there's an old piece of his that he wrote about the experience of um, going to high school with Richard Spencer. So that's cute. Um, Wait, but what? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't read it. He's I just the kind of guy, like if you're on like an international flight and you, they give you the newspaper, be mm-hmm. some puzzling sort of column by Graham Wood in the FT or, you know, just like, Oh yes, I'm, I'm halfway over the Atlantic and Graham Wood is entertaining me. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. But maybe we can discuss this, uh, this uh what what is it called there is no defense of looting because i feel like this you know from whatever perspective it's actually coming from honestly everyone making fun of this book one sounds like it and two like sounds like all the arguments made in this and mm-hmm. two like it's really funny because this is a perfect example of frankly everything that i've seen written about this book or or discussed about or like tweeted about Literally just sounds like all that anyone did at most is either listened to the NPR interview or skimmed the introduction because mm-hmm. everything that is mentioned mm-hmm. in any of them is only stuff Isn't from the introduction. <laughs> you know, yeah. if I were, I don't know, you know, if I were someone on the left, like concerned with respectability and making fun and dunking on Vicky's book i would at least read past the introduction so i would make sure that my content didn't just stink like everyone else's but not anyone has even like managed to do that it has been basically a repeat of the argument that rose twitter had with itself back in like june and july over whether or not like a post-race approach to like class organizing was the way to go or if it was like you know uh more appropriate to be out in the street Right. And this is, again, like sort of the classic reproduction of white supremacy through like decency and uh, moderation. What revolution are you waiting for? Right. Exactly. So can I um, read you guys some segments of this? Give me some grain. Let's. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm just going to I'm just going to highlight a couple segments that he's such a good writer. We're lovely. (laughs) Really stood out to me. So uh, after some pablum, uh, he, he writes, quote, by now you have guessed that I am not the audience for this book. I have a job and am therefore invested in building a system where you get paid for your work and pay others for theirs. And then everyone pays taxes to make sure if these arrangements don't work out, you can still live a dignified life. Oh, so you support that <laughs> system. Uh, is that oh. the one? Is that the one we live in? I'm yeah, exactly. I'm sure that that's the case. <laughs> that was, this was just a, that, when I read his article, I, I essentially, because uh, as many listeners might know, I have dyslexia and read very slowly. So I, I definitely feel like I have learned to search for the meatier parts of, of uh, people's arguments. And like going into this, I just 
I just thought like, all right, well, I need to get to that sentence because I know it's in here and it's the crux of his argument. And uh, that's it's the only thing in here that it fucking matters. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's like I'm still baffled by the, the people who just assume that if these arrangements don't work out, you can still have a dignified life. Speaking from the <laughs> yeah. other side of that, that coin, sir. I respectfully call your bullshit. Um, <laughs> yeah, the American welfare state is right. It is great, right, guys? Oh, I mean, it's yeah. that's, uh, oh that's what God. this show is all about. A, that's all we talk about. I love about. a system where people own my like materials of my labor. I really love <laughs> not owning what I produce. It's great. It's don't every don't, month with my social security disability insurance, the government also sends me three Faberge eggs. <laughs> yeah. It's great. But Phil, don't you, don't you love the, uh, the fact that you know that if, uh, for some reason you, uh, you aren't able to give somebody else your labor that, uh, that the government will step in and do what it can to make sure that your life is, is still just as, just as perfect as it is now. I mean, I, I think that's, that what, must, that's they, what keeps they, me going. They, they keep Graham Wood in a very, very plush, opulent prison. <laughs> Somebody comes in once a day with a silver tray and says, Graham, keep doing what you're doing. You're a God. He's never paid anything. You know, he has no ownership of what he writes, but they just tell him once a day that he's a God and he's doing well. And that's, that's how you get him to write columns. When Graham, yeah. when Graham isn't writing, he's just like strapped into the chair from the parallax view and they're playing Fantasia on loop or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, Is this anyway. what the welfare state looks like? <laughs> That's what welfare looks like for rich people. Um, anyway, <laughs> so he continues, quote, my job sometimes entails traveling to countries recently or currently destroyed by civil unrest. And that are and that experience has made me appreciate the fragility of peace and has not made me eager to conduct a similar experiment in my own city. Oh, when my I God. Think, oh, 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 yeah. it hasn't made you. So you've so you have um, you've gone to I don't know. Hungary, you've gotten off your, the Lufthansa plane. You're staying at you know one of several very nice boutique hotels. You, you know, after having your evening meal and cocktail, you saunter down to the public square, and oh dear, people are upset. I, you know, maybe it, maybe this is where uh, things lead, but I certainly wouldn't want to go there in my country. Um, he wrote this article like at some point, this is like when I first remember like laughing at this guy was like some point last year, which was all about how he, about like how watching ISIS videos like broke his soul. And the opening part of that article, he goes into this long thing about how he used to be a butcher. Like one of his first jobs as a butcher. And it's like a whole paragraph about like with every slaughter, you distinguish, you extinguish a life and you feel that for the rest of your life. And now my soul is broken by watching ISIS videos. And therefore I am a commentator on violence. <laughs> um, so he, he continues, quote, when I think of riots and smash storefronts, I think of Kristallnacht. Oh, really? I think of American <laughs> businesses built by penniless immigrants who prefer the, to forfeit their vacations and weekends for 30 years rather than see their children suffer as they did. Wait, so he was at Kristallnacht, but also <laughs> went to high school with Richard Spencer? Is well, what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how can old I, is Richard Spencer? Can I also can I also just say that usually in it, like in an article like this, the second thing that I skim for um, is uh, a reference. To or or basically an allegation that the the 
person he's criticized, like the person that the author is criticizing, the leftist is, is a Nazi. A Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically, just, it's literally the first one is like, I'm a, I am part of, I am part of the bourgeoisie class, and you, sir are a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Absent quote, absent from this book is even fleeting recognition that anyone or nearly everyone might prefer the current non-revolutionary arrangement. <laughs> Osterweil Who did you poll, sir, in order not, to come yeah. to that conclusion, sir? Does not say what propertyless system of government or anti-government she prefers, but I suspect it is not democracy, a term she uses only sneeringly. Gotcha. <laughs> Um, which in the context of the book is to decry that obviously like the system that we have, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, quote, uh, nor is it clear how she intends to move from the past disgraces and present unrest to her goal, whatever it is, Mm. other than by rioting and stealing things until morale improves. What do you do when the free stuff runs out? The businesses and ordinary people who invested in your city decide not to make that mistake again. And oops, a few shopkeepers get beaten to death. That's not like people don't just like attack strangers. (laughs) That doesn't happen. Well, but like that's not even the point. It's like Hobbesian brain. It does. (laughs) But I mean, but again, I think the to me the broader I think problem with this entire like gestalt is that there's no there's like that it is important somehow in this world to have a Graham Wood opine on the value of like uh, uh, of looting as if it is something that like whoa when oh well when a writer at the Atlantic says it you know I mean I think it's important that like the every critique of like Osterwell's book so far has like included this story about Latasha Harlins who was killed during Mm -hmm. the LA riots um, in 1991 she was shot by like a Korean store owner Um, like what they're not talking about though is that for like literally two weeks basically the local news had been playing footage back and forth of like showing on TV like people taking up arms to like patrol the top of their convenience stores with semi-automatic weapons and so I think it's like it's it's quite uh, fine for him to be like critiquing this from like his position like but it's frustrating because like obviously like people like like the people like who write for the Atlantic are are the ones who like contribute to like the circumstances that that through a critique of like looting and civil unrest result in people getting killed because of how it's like talked about in the media. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It becomes like uh, you know, things like like this. Like Gramwood basically starts saying, uh, you know, that uh that she has a conviction, uh quote, a conviction that her opponents deserve violence. Um, <laughs> saying essentially that, you know, once people <laughs> once people like make one mistake, they are like forever enemies. Uh going on to basically say uh there's a ridiculous quote in here saying, quote, perhaps you think that Dr. King's speeches were more inspiring because he did not deliver them with a rifle in his hand like Saddam Hussein. People like you are not uh, part of the real civil rights movement. And so he's like, he's like making it, making fun, trying to make fun of Osterwell. So then, I mean, then he kind of goes on to, to, but to like explain really the position where he's coming from that he puts actually, he shows the position, the like position of comfort in Mm -hmm. the article. Um, when he starts sort of like complaining about the NPR interview and NPR sharing, like the, and the fact that NPR, I mean, a lot of people took issue with the fact that NPR, like, 
you know, even interview, interview like if they did right. an interview with an author where I don't know, they'd like actually hear out the idea, like, come on. Um, but so, uh, he says, quote, happily, I see very few people sharing Osterweil's NPR interview approvingly and nearly everyone consuming it in that joyous and liberatory mode known as hate reading. I haven't yet encountered anyone who has read the actual book. <laughs> Gee, I can't imagine why you haven't. But okay. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, OK, so he's just saying, you know. There was no one in my social circle who's read that. I mean, it, no, it, he, it's he been admits out for reading week, the so. colophon, though, because he does make a joke in the beginning about a line the publisher well, puts in near the copyright. So at least he got further than most people. He, he went to page two. He's <laughs> saying he read it, but in his, you know, in his expert in, opinion, in Graham Wood's version of the polity, no one has. No one has uh, read it. Uh, He continues, quote, America is, after all, the country that nominated Joe Biden, who said that looters and rioters, quote, make a mockery of Black Lives Matter and should be tried, arrested and put in jail. I mean, I guess what I'm saying here is what's interesting is, um, you know, like this has become such a fervor that like Newt Gingrich tweeted about this book today. I know that was pretty funny. And like, you know. I think I think not only his uh, I'm just sort of imagining a world in which not only will uh, Joe Biden have to like denounce like <laughs> denounce uh, like the like Antifa organization, which is not an organization, um, but that he will have to like make some sort of specific slight to like what is it bold type books or something or to. <laughs> Uh, or to like Vicky Osterweil herself and I be mean, like, yeah. we don't believe in, you know, there's, there's like what you're, you know, like it's just, it's very funny to me. I like, I like the idea that like, just uh, when I saw that Newt Gingrich had, had tweeted about it um, and that his critique specifically centered around some of the like terminology choices um, that Vicky had used. I liked the idea that he was like yelling through his house to his wife like, what is this hetero, hetero patriarch? Uh, get down here! Get, what does this word mean? Yeah, I love that um, I, I love that uh, conservatives, like American conservative, conservatives both absolutely love and adore like uh, Roman culture and like want the kids to learn Latin or whatever, but then they'll be like, "What cis hetero <laughs> patriarchy? What is this? What does this mean?" Um, anyway, so we I mean we don't we shouldn't stay on this for for too long, but uh, just one last thing to pull very quickly because uh, this really tells you uh, where the debate of what the debate over cancel culture really is. Um, <laughs> He, uh, Graham Wood, then he, he like frames this sort of like counterfactual, um, in terms of like wondering what it means for NPR to platform Vicky <laughs> Osterweil or whatever, which is such nonsense. Um, quote, should NPR also interview Nazis? Yes, actually. <laughs> if the year is 1933 and most Americans don't know what Nazis believe. Anyway, they literally, I just, okay. I just, as I just recounted in the beginning of this episode, Artie and I were listening to NPR while sending it up for an infusion and they were interviewing Nazis earlier this week. So (laughs) done. They already did it. Sorry. Anyway, the true true collapse of, of liberal culture, just, you know, make sure you donate and get your tote bag. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, I mean, I I think also, especially like as things are starting to pick up as we're going into fall, um, the next couple of months where we're going to have to like really, um, I think, 
consider like public health in a totally new way. Um, and mm-hmm. I think the vaccine debate is a very good example of sort of like what's going on because it's, it's incredibly complex. And as we've said from the beginning, you know, one of the biggest issues when you have a global public health crisis or even like a local public health crisis is, is uh, faith in institutions. And a lot of things have happened in the past couple of weeks, which have really, I think changed, uh, not my perception of the CDC, but a lot of other people's perceptions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in in the last, if I'm correct, in the last episode, in our patron episode for yeah. this week, um, which was called Dread and Circuses, um, I think we actually, we talked about, we hit on this vaccine thing a little bit, which actually I think um, is worth mentioning again in terms of, in, in terms of like regulatory approach, we've seen like this coupled with the law and order Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of campaign move is just a really I don't know it's like a fascinating spectacle to watch actually I think because mm-hmm. um, we had we had talked a lot uh, in the last episode about how like how the whole vaccine thing and the the push to sort of basically get a situation um, set up where like AstraZeneca as opposed to doing their full their full like phase three mm-hmm. trial right there mm-hmm. like which they just literally started I think on on September 1st uh, like 30,000 patient um, trial that it would just get emergency use authorization and um, and like lo and behold mm. like <laughs> just the other day who steps out there uh, but everyone's uh, everyone's liberal darling uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and says well you know under certain circumstances um <laughs> We could just go ahead and do that. Oh, this is so frustrating because as we've talked about a lot, and I highly recommend going back and listening to our uh, COVID explainer that we did two weeks ago, you know, um, the like the vaccine situation is going to be very dire when something comes to market. Right. The way that Mm -hmm. the vaccine is being used as a political tool is completely different from the reason the vaccine is being developed as a public health intervention. Right, exactly. Like the, the political time, like it might be the case, right? Like Fauci came out with this thing this week where he was like, uh, well, if the if the data is overwhelming, right? And we'll right. put the data on Whatever this and it's means. overwhelming. Well, okay. Uh, that is one of the just like most deceptive ways of describing this. Like, because vaccines do not, like the word overwhelming has no meaning <laughs> at all within the process of like a clinical trial. There's mm-hmm. no mean, there's no definition of that word. There is a, a standard of evidence that we might like to see. Um, but that needs to be talked about explicitly because you can't just say overwhelming because anything could be described as overwhelming, like natural language utterly fails us, uh, <laughs> on this. Right. Um, well, and I think I add to that the fact that the preliminary data that had to be submitted in order for them to even get to the point of like requesting to skip phase three trials and go straight to market right. doesn't show anything um, overwhelming. In fact, it actually shows the opposite. Well, and also here's the here. I feel like here's what's really at stake is if you if you do just sort of barrel through um, without like adequately completing the trial, like the, there is, of course, um you know, again, exactly that slippage of like, what is, um, what is the word he used? Overwhelming. Overwhelming. Yep. Yeah. What is overwhelming? Like right. evidence? Well, overwhelming, I would say would probably be overwhelming evidence is the kind of thing that you can only get from completing a fucking study. But right. like, exactly. um, but yeah. I, what's it, I think what's at risk is like, so actually there's, um, there was a, there was a great, uh, piece in stat news on this. And, uh, there was a, a quote from, um, 
this uh, professor of biostatistics um, named Natalie Dean, who specializes in uh, vaccine study design, I like actually. Her a lot, actually. Um, and th- like this, this is the heart of it, really. So she says, quote, if you make a decision based on promising but not convincing data, and then you discontinue your randomization, you discontinue your evidence generating process. You mm-hmm. cannot go back. Or you can never go backward. You can never go back and generate your evidence. So what this means is that if you if we push forward with it based on whatever the you know the the basically like the bureaucratic apparatus of the FDA and the CDC right mm-hmm. determine. Mm-hmm. Um, possibly through again, like politically, like, I mean, likely through a politically motivated act. Right. Right. We will like never know, like literally that will be it. We just won't know. And, and we will lose the opportunity to learn from it as well if it doesn't work. Right. right? Like, so Mm -hmm. we won't know why it doesn't work. We won't have any data to sort of direct studies to respond to like what didn't work. Right. And right. you undermine which is how like, vaccine test- development actually works. Right. It's and not just like which one finishes first. It's like <laughs> right. you have we- to see if one works and then you adjust accordingly. I mean, I think right. that there is a like one of the issues here is that there is a way there's a very clear way where the production of a vaccine could be a political win, even just sort of uh, if, if nothing happens right uh even if even if just like a there's some sort of claim that like in a in a limited way like a, a vaccine's been approved for like a select population the like it the way that Fauci is sort of talking about it and the way that like this is being tracked even if you just listen to um or like read whatever a uh Gannett like paper is that uh th- they're sort of folding together the idea of like a political success which is like we have demonstrated some proof of concept and like a success for like the development of vaccine which is you know by any standard like pushed far far off and i think it is the sort of the issue is like that uh like the language of like uh clinical trial doesn't translate well Mm -mm. you know it's at the very least it doesn't translate well and no one's really trying to translate it. Well, I think the problem too is, is like the sort of vaccine is this golden goose egg now of like the, the um, magical realist object of desire, which we're pretending like can just sort of come out of whole cloth if we throw enough money at it or have the right contract. And that's not ultimately like how vaccine development works. And like, or I think, and the, and the right <laughs> vaccine trial early enough. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the polio vaccine is like a very great example here because it took not only years, but in instances where there were polio vaccines rushed to market didn't go great. There were some <laughs> problems. Like there were two st- significant scandals, which like, have contributed to like our modern anti-vaccine movement in a really bad way. And this has the potential right. to really ruin things worse. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And and I think that's the thing that's, that's sort of being missed, which is that like, even if you don't understand the, or even if it's very difficult to translate the idea of a like clinical trial into like popular kind of consciousness, um, it's worth sort of like inserting that into the question about, uh, just just returning to like normal life. And of course, like the vaccine does now, um, it offers this way of erasing, uh, like erasing so much about why the economy isn't functioning normally as, <laughs> as it, you know, is supposed to be, or like why 
uh, it's still difficult to safely send uh, kids back to school. Like it has this way of just sort of entrapping us that like, yes, it was necessary to do all of these things. It, it will be necessary to, to not like provide people with any sort of, uh, you know, s- support or, or sort of economic insulation uh, from these risks. It will be necessary to like go back to normal as soon as possible and uh, accept a different level of risk than most people think is mm-hmm. acceptable. Right? right. And like the, yeah. the entire gambit here is avoiding the question of what the tolerable level of risk is either with right. returning to work or with a vaccine that as long as those is that question of like, what is a tolerable level of risk? Is this a good idea? Is this something that like you would give to your kids? Like as long as that is off the table and dematerialized, then this this sort of like the 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 wheels of like the American political economy are just going to be greased and, and continue to move along the same direction. Well, I, I mm-hmm. think on one hand you avoid that risk, but also I think you see um, that risk being wielded or having the capacity to be wielded sort of at convenience, though, at the same time. Right. I mean, what is the what is language like? Well, we could stop. We like after after sort of, you know, after about a week of hand wringing, right. in the, in the press over like whether this decision was being politicized, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you have Fauci going out and saying like, well, if there's overwhelming evidence, uh, that suggests we could, we could like stop uh, a trial, then, you know, there are conditions under, and there are, you know, there, there is like a, there is a FDA pathway for like, you know, some degree of like, there's, there's some technical pathway for like evidence requirements, I guess, for, for pre-approval, but at the same time, although, you know, you could obviously just override them, but, um, I feel like that, that language of overwhelming, um, Mm -hmm. to me suggests it can also be like, I wouldn't be surprised to see that, like that if this happens after a certain point, it's like, well, you know, with the amount of cases that there are, um, the greater risk is to not begin the rollout now mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like uh, where where that that exact same where, you know, this the, the same, you know, material reality that we're observing is like both wielded as like, again, is wielded as at convenience, either as like, well, it's too risky to, you know, do it or mm-hmm. it's too risky to not. Right. Like uh, to, mm-hmm. to not just inject this like not i mean literally i guess but like, <laughs> like to not like literally bring everyone. this right. bring this yeah. into the american populace as, as quickly as possible doing the exact you know again doing the exact thing that we made fun of them making fun of russia for you know right. that that i think it's particularly insidious because that message is being delivered to a public that is basically already being coerced either by like uh you know their their like employer or you know their material pesky material need to like eat and work under capitalism to like accept you know pretty much anything that you know Fauci decrees to be like the right thing to do like people are people are are motivated uh they want to feel safe of course I mean yeah well and they they want to not you know be evicted (laughs) like if if somebody's telling you that like Hey, maybe we can speed up this trial so that we can get you a vaccine so that you can go back to work so that you can not be evicted. Like that's a that's like pretty persuasive. Yeah, and and of course if you have a vaccine, uh however in, ineffective, 
it's then even more possible to do the strategy of individuation. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you can go back to work if you get the vaccine, right? <laughs> right. If you're not a wuss. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I think Indeed that's... passports. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, let, let's just be really uh, specific about the the way that we somehow absolve ourselves of blame or that like politically absolve their, themselves of blame for all of this is finding technical devices, be it a vaccine, an immunity passport, a, a different way, a different technical way of describing the world as we talked about, like pulling deaths in the future. Like we've seen mm-hmm. this over and over again, but there there's an entire like suite of technical devices that allow you to do that. And when they're moving together, when they're working as an ensemble, like that's a very powerful and dangerous uh, thing. And like, it's not happening yet, but it's entirely, you know, there's still, there's still like, if you look at like public opinion, by at least public opinion standards, like that's not, people haven't taken that serum, that ideological serum quite yet. (laughs) But, um, but you, you put a vaccine on the table, you, you know, I mean, it's entirely possible, um, to see how that becomes, um, how those sort of devices, um, you know, yeah. get us, get us to a very 1919 sort of place with this. Well, no, totally. <laughs> I mean, you had, you had Trump and in his interview, like now infamous interview with Laura Ingram, uh, or, like from like, I don't know what, like yesterday or something or earlier this week where he was saying like, you know, I never had the flu. I never needed a vaccine. But uh, when I came to the White House, they told me, okay, you're going to work here. You got to get a flu vaccine. And I've gotten it three years in a row and I still haven't gotten the flu and I'm fine. Right. (laughs) Like that. I'm paraphrasing, but that was like the gist of what he said. And I think it's important to like maybe maybe we should discuss actually the two 1935 polio vaccines because it's instructive as to why some of these parameters are in place, sure. right? Because yeah. Yeah. what is the point of um, experimenting on 30,000 people if the if the experiment is rendered useless as a result, right? So um, obviously, like, polio was a, you know, huge problem globally. Um, and during World War One, it became, like, a epidemic within the United States Um, and so the sort of like push for vaccine development started, um, around like the early teens, right. Mm -hmm. Um, by 1935, you've got two teams that, uh, have developed and tested polio vaccines. And in, um, I think it's like November and December of 1935, they were presented. Um, the first one was a guy, a guy named John Colmer. Uh, he was at Temple University. And he went first, and his polio uh, his polio virus vaccine was tested in ten thousand children. Um, there was no control group, so everybody in the experiment got the vaccine. Nobody got a placebo. Um, five of the children died of polio. Ten more were paralyzed, usually in the arm where the vaccine was injected. Um, there was no consult, no control group. Um, so there was no way of proving efficacy at all. And the medical community basically revolted. People openly called him a murderer. Um, he was, you know, basically uh, kind of like laughed into dentistry from there. And um, his vaccine the worst thing was, that can happen to you in medicine. <laughs> well, it, 
Well, sort of. Not really. I mean, he got lucky. You know, he had a long career in dentistry after this. But, you know, he so his vaccine was basically probably totally junk. Right. It was Mm -hmm. probably not effective. He had no way of proving that it was effective. And, you know, people died and were paralyzed. You have the second vaccine, Maurice Brody, who was at NYU and actually worked for the New York City Health Department. Now, he went second. And because of Colmer's really bad uh, technique of not having a control group, people were already biased against Brody's vaccine. And despite the fact that he had a control group and it showed success, it showed that it was like 88% effective. The mistakes made by Colmer, who, who presented his one month prior, and the like lack of medical ethics in that experiment meant that researchers still believed that if one case, right, like if one person in Brody's study had gotten polio, then it meant that Brody's vaccine was junk because right. of the like malpractice of this first guy, Colmer. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it turns out that like one out of 900 people in the group receiving the vaccine um, developed polio. And then mm-hmm. on the second round, it was only one out of 7,500. So this was like pretty successful. But Colmer had already made such a mess, been called a murderer, written up in the New York Times, and it ruined polio vaccines for 20 years. And the Salk vaccine that ended up getting approved, which is the one that's famous, Mm-hmm. is actually based on Brody's technology. Now, Brody ended up dying three years later and being run out of the health department and out of NYU. His life was, like, ruined. And Colmer went on to have a long career uh, teaching dentistry. <laughs> so I feel like we're, we're looking at the possibility for, you know, polio... <laughs> polio didn't get, like, quote-unquote, eradicated in the United States until, like, the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Do we really want to take the risk of losing any useful data from this first COVID vaccine trial, right? Mm -hmm. Because the risks are so high for like allowing us to go forward with future trials and the AstraZeneca vaccine might not work, right? Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. You know, what actually the data from this combined phase one, phase two trial um, shows but, you know, from all uh, reports I've read of the preprint, it doesn't seem like it's uh, particularly um, overwhelming. Overwhelming, <laughs> As Fauci said, it shows sort of non-statistically significant results. Add to that the fact that we still do not know how long the immunity by antibodies is afforded, whether or not the body is making memory cells for lasting immunity. Um yeah, it's not a it's it's not the uh, silver bullet that I think it's being portrayed as pr- quite universally. Right. And it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, the the silver bullet. The reason why it's being looked for as a silver bullet is because we are yeah congenitally not able to do any sort of other thing. This is like the one thing we're staking the amelioration of the entire problem on. Innovation. Yeah, we've set up. I mean, <laughs> effectively, what we've done is we've set up like, uh, because it's like sort of the only thing left in our like collective cultural understanding is like like an action movie, uh, like thriller um, process by yeah, which there's like, a montage going on right now. <laughs> yes, by which we will all be vaccinated. Exactly. There's like yeah. 
it, it's just like this like weird hero's journey that like we're like nope no 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 we're not gonna nope it's got to be that way we're gonna well, yeah, and that it, we're gonna fix it and that it will happen by montage that it will basically be like okay it's in okay great right. okay then right. that's it it's all well, that's, gonna that's be over. people people like there's there's a lot of like fun like poked at trump for saying like oh yes one day like the uh and like the the virus will just disappear but like that is what a lot of people think. Yeah. They're, like there's no, totally. so much magical thinking. I mean, I mean that's it's just not how it you, works. I mean, you guys, yeah. in terms of uh, public policy decisions, do you want to, you guys got to want to hear a real humdinger that just uh, got announced during uh, like while we were recording? Oh boy. Um, so it's not, I mean, I don't know that they're going to uh, do this, but in a press conference, uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, called on the New York city city council uh, to act to enable indoor dining to happen again in oh, New York City. Me. Hold on. Under the condition that they institute a 4,000 officer police task force to, quote, enforce social distancing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh uh, my God. Uh, sorry. I'm sorry. That's that's too much pepper. Too much pepper on the osso Hey, get it wasn't, that off there. It wasn't my fault I uh, had to kill him. Uh, there's a knife on the table, you know? <laughs> that, that cheese, the cheese, cheesecake, too creamy. Too creamy. Now it oh should be more god. solid. <laughs> oh know. my god, oh my god. That's, uh, Sorry, I just like thinking about the, the food. The, this just resonates for me as food police. Yeah, and, uh, that's the only thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it, it's telling that, like, I don't think... Well, first of all, I don't think Cuomo has, like, been to a restaurant in New York city in ever, because I don't think there's any way that you could open any restaurant in New York city while effect. Well, whatever, whatever effective social distancing is by doing whatever his standard for social distancing is like, I'm sure it's social distancing also for the diners only. And that's a good point Vince that so many of these places have kitchens that are so fucking small that well, there's literally and no and way. Like, it just, I mean, I, I'm well, thinking of like a number of restaurants that literally have tables where you have to move them like to you have to like move the table to one side to literally get in and out. Like oh, yeah. also a great place to put uh, gr- like excellent place to put cops is restaurants. Like for not what wearing do cops, masks right, yeah. and not following Co- social like, distancing themselves. And having tons of fucking COVID cases rampant throughout the fucking NYPD. <laughs> like okay so we, you can do oh you can do indoor dining only so long as you make sure that there is one COVID infected cop at all times <laughs> in the most likely space that you are to get COVID which is a fucking indoor space where you are like I don't know actively bringing things to your mouth and <laughs> sucking in air constantly and like, excuse oh, me God. thank you Artie for describing uh indoor dining that way I will now never do it again in my entire yeah. life um <laughs> I mean I'm not sure I'm ever gonna eat in a restaurant again and feel the same way personally but I mean, not if I'm also just imagining like, can you imagine the number of cops just like going into fancy restaurants and like shaking them down for like a free steak in order to like not disturb their diners? (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's basically what I'm sure that's what's happening in terms of the outdoor dining right now. Yeah, well, I could just just file a free takeout here. Uh, The perpetrator said that uh, she had never dined with us before and did not know that we do things a little differently here. (laughs) 
Well, guys, if you want to come to Wisconsin, we already have indoor dining here. And oh uh, my god, yeah, <laughs> can't say we're, that it's gone. We're, we're getting off. each other sick the old-fashioned way. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we don't know. We don't need any police to tell us to get one another sick. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> we're doing it pretty well on our own. That's um, that's wild. That's uh, I just. I can't help but think that like uh, Andrew Cuomo felt like he was not getting enough uh, ridicule and attention this week. And so he had to cook this up because uh, national politics were just just a little bit too foregrounded for him. He had the only to question prove I to have the... is where is that going to be? Where is the police restaurant police going to be on the tapestry? Yeah, on the Cuomo tapestry. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, God. Also, wait, are they going to have, you know how like the the NYPD has like uh, cars that say like school police for like the, you know, the cops that kill students and then like that's like traffic, <laughs> traffic police Food for like police. the people who like write tickets and stuff like that. Is there going to be like dining police? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Social, social distancing. Uh, what's the, the social distancing Stasi. uh, indoor dining enforcement public eating officers yeah yeah (laughs) exactly no but basically i mean yeah if we're gonna uh, considering that i guess probably uh new york city is soon to be designated uh what is it an anarchist district jurisdiction because anarchist loves the idea of jurisdiction Well, I think that's enough for today. Um, if you'd like a second episode of Death Panel every week, you can become a patron to get access to Monday's premium episode. And you also get a discount on merch as well. Patreon.com slash Death Panel Pod. Yes. Thank you, Artie. Oh, yeah. And um, I think with that, we'll just uh, we'll call it a day. Mm-hmm. All right. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Take care, everyone.